This morning, God speaks his word to our hearts and minds from Romans, the 12th chapter and the 12th verse. It is a one-sentence, 11-word verse. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you are here this morning and you are wondering what God's will is for your life, you've come to the right place because I am here this morning to tell you what it is. I will read the sermon text, which is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's God's will for your life. He wants you to be continually thankful, prayerful, joyful. Isn't this good news? If you are, are you depressed or discouraged? This is not God's will for you. Are you anxious? This is not God's will for you. God's will for you is to be continually prayerful and always joyful. How do we go about pursuing this joy? Let's pray that God would help us to find the answer to that question. Our Father in heaven, we come before you uh, humbly but confidently in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we ask that you would pour out upon us your Holy Spirit, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see wonderful things in your word. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit in order to make this text uh, clear. I think of the psalm which says, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? I would ask for that uh, revival of joy to be our strength in serving you. Lord, I am also mindful of the fact that uh, for many, this might sound like uh, bad news. Many who may be struggling with uh, depression and hear that it's your will for us to be joyful as a word that, that, that condemns, as a word of, of law. And so I pray that you would help us to understand the, the good news, the gospel foundation of our joy. And I pray that you would bring healing uh, to us. Uh, that we might rejoice in you uh, afresh. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's always a bit risky to preach a very short text like the ones that we have today. I might wish there were more of God's words here to ensure that I'm on the right track. But here is my best effort at understanding how these three short commands fit together into one coherent message. Verse 16 said, be joyful always. And you read that and you think, how is that possible? How can I rejoice always? And the answer is verse 17, pray continually. So the way to rejoice always is to be continuously aware of the presence of God. To be lifting up your heart to him, living your life, as they used to say, coram deo, which is Latin for before God, in the presence of God. So you say, okay, the way to rejoice always is to pray continually. 
But how in the world am I supposed to do that? And then you read verse 18. Be thankful in all circumstances. So I'm going to do these verses in reverse order. Giving thanks in all circumstances leads to praying continually, which leads to rejoicing always. Thanksgiving is the way to begin a life of moment-by-moment remembering the Lord in prayer. Often, when we feel prompted by the Spirit to pray, we get stuck because we're not sure where to begin. Begin by giving thanks for whatever is immediately at hand. Psalm 100 says, enter, begin, right, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Now, perhaps you're thinking, okay, I see that giving thanks in all circumstances can be a step into more continual praying, but that still seems like a pretty high step. How do I give thanks in all circumstances? Easier said than done, right? Indeed it is, but here are three suggestions for how to cultivate this thanksgiving. Number one, have a robust doctrine of God's providence, his absolute governing of every detail in the universe. Every hair on your head is numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the purpose of his will. And what is more, says Romans 8.28, he works all things for the good of those who love him. And the more you believe that, the more thankful you will be. The deeper your faith in this truth, the deeper your joy. And it's absolutely indispensable to hold on to this truth if you are to maintain joyful thanksgiving even in the midst of painful circumstances. We have to know that God is in control of all things and working it together for his glory and our good. The second suggestion is to begin with the tangible and the concrete before moving on to the intangible and the abstract. The book that was most influential in my life during my college years was called The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. It's a great book. I still recommend it. During seminary, I had the opportunity to hear Dallas Willard speak, and I I got to interview him for a paper I was writing. And I asked him simply to describe his daily devotional life. And he told me that he always began his morning prayers with thanksgiving. And then he said something that was very down-to-earth and helpful to me. He said that he starts by giving thanks for something like the orange juice he's drinking that morning. Because it's easier to warm up by giving thanks for orange juice than to get right out of bed and start contemplating God's omniscience. So start with the concrete before the abstract. And there's actually a good... Christmas sermon here, if this were the time for that, because no one has ever seen God, but Jesus came to make the Father known. But we'll save that for another day. The third suggestion for how to give thanks in all circumstances is meditate much on the meaning of your salvation. Rejoice and give thanks for your salvation. When everything else around us is crumbling, We need to be able to say, well, at least I'm still saved, and and have that not be a meaningless platitude. 
but a meaningful and powerful truth. And I think that this is the ultimate answer, really. And so I'm going to come back to it again at the end. For now, let's stay here in 1 Thessalonians 5 and move on from giving thanks in all circumstances to praying continually. That sounds hard, right? Perhaps we're not even sure we want that. Katie used to have this coffee mug that I always made fun of. It wasn't her fault. It was a gift. But this mug, the mug had this morning's text on it. But it read, be joyful always, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Give thanks in all circumstances. They just skipped the pray continually part. And if we're honest, sometimes we want to skip that part as well, but it can't be done. Joy is found in the presence of God. Our thanksgiving is a gateway into the presence of God. If we just wave and say thanks and go on the rest of our day forgetting God, then our lives are not going to be characterized by joy. Psalm 89, verse 15 and 16 says this. I love this verse. Blessed or happy are those who have learned to acclaim you, to praise you, who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They exult in your righteousness. Who rejoices all day long? Those who walk in the light of God's presence. Don't you want a joy that lasts all day? Walk in his presence by learning to thank and praise God. Prayer is more than just a spiritual discipline. Because obviously you can't spend your whole day with your head bowed and your hands folded over your Bible praying. Prayer is walking in the light of God's presence. Prayer is communion with God. So if we want our lives filled with God, they must be filled with prayer. Let me tell you about a couple of godly men who have inspired me to pursue more continual praying. 35 years ago, I got to hear Billy Graham speak. It was at the Urbana 87 Missions Conference. And I was struck by just a a passing comment he made while he was telling a story. He said, one day I was out for a walk, and I found myself praying. And I just thought, yeah, I want to be the kind of man who just finds himself praying. Make me into the kind of man who will just find himself praying throughout the day. But we don't have to just wait for that to happen spontaneously. We can also cultivate this habit. And the man who has been an expiring example to me in this is a man you probably have not heard of. His name is Frank Laubach, and he was a missionary to India. I think I told you in the past that I spent a couple of summers in India. We thought we were going to be missionaries uh, to India at one point. And so I ran across some of his writings. When he was a missionary in India, he worked with developing literacy among Indian children, and his journals were published under the title Game with Minutes, because he would play a game each day in which he tried to see how many minutes per day he could remain conscious of the presence of God. Here's an excerpt from his journal. He wrote, God, yesterday was fairly close Yet only about one-fourth of the time was I conscious of thee. The building of Gujarati language charts drew my thoughts from thee nearly every minute. Let me try it again today with thee. 
the preparation of the material for the India report also pushed the out. I did remember the during much of the ping pong. <laughs> Isn't that great? He prayed, he communed with God during the ping pong. Now I trust this didn't mean he was praying to beat his opponent, but it means that he played with an attitude of thanksgiving. He delighted in God and said in his spirit, thank you for your abundant goodness. Thank you for this time of recreation. Thank you for your wondrous creation of hands and eyes and geometry and physics. He wrote elsewhere in his journal, quote, experience proves that a minute with thee always brings fruit, often wonderful fruit. Please don't fall prey to the deception that unless you have the next half hour free, you can't pray. Learn to pray for a minute and begin with thanksgiving. And maintaining that thankful spirit seems to be the key to keeping up a continual communion with God because then everything around you, the ping pong, snow, the children, your coffee, they all become springboards into continuing your prayer walk in the light of his presence as you receive all things with thanksgiving. And backing up now to verse 16, this continuous acknowledgement of God's presence is the key to rejoicing always. God is always present, and so we can always rejoice. God is present right here, right now, in this moment. He is present. And that's always true, right? And for the believer, that is true not only in the sense of his essential omnipresence, but he is also indwelling. He is dwelling within us right now by his Holy Spirit. And joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, says Luke 10. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit, it says in Acts. Paul speaks more than once of joy in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said of the Spirit that if anyone believes in him, streams of living water will flow from within him. So the illustration that comes to my mind is of an underground aquifer. The water is always down there underground. We just have to dig a hole. We have to make some room. And then we are filled with the joy of his presence. God is always present. The problem is that we are not always present. God is always right here, right now, but we are frequently not present. We are in our heads, living in the past or in the future. Some of us tend to live more in the past. We replay the tapes and nurse our grudges and relive our regrettable decisions. Others of us tend to live more in the future, worrying about what is going to happen to us or our loved ones. We all bounce back and forth between anger and anxiety to varying degrees. And if we can't find rest for our souls through faith in the finished work of Christ in the past and hope in the promise of future glory, then we end up trying to escape the present moment through addictions. Now, there's an outline of a Christian psychology packed into that last paragraph, so let me take a minute to try to unpack it. 
David Paulison was a Westminster Seminary professor of biblical counseling. And he said that most of his clients came to him with one of three presenting problems. Anger, anxiety, or addictions. Anger comes from reliving the past. Anxiety is worrying about the future. Addictions are about escaping the present. And the remedy is to have faith in God to forgive us and enable us to forgive others for sins of the past, hope in God for the promise that he will work all things together for his and our future glory, and then be present in the moment where God is so that you can rejoice in his presence and not run from him into addictive substances and behaviors. Easy peasy lemon squeezy, right? No, of course it's not easy. In fact, it's impossible in this world for us to always be joyful. You might be thinking, well, wait, wait, wait. If it's impossible, why does God command us to do it? Well, God calls us to impossible things all the time. Jesus said, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How's that been going for you this week? We need to be able to rightly distinguish law from gospel if we're going to pursue this ever-increasing joy without condemning ourselves for falling short of it. See, most people think law is in the Old Testament and gospel is in the New Testament, but that's not right. There is both law and gospel on every page of the Bible. There are theological categories. Law is everything God commands you to do. Gospel is everything God promises to do for you. And even the same verse can be both law and gospel to you. And this verse is a great example. Be joyful always. That's a command. But it's also gospel, right? I mean, rejoice, you're forgiven. God has promised to work all things for your glory. So rejoice, that's good news. But it is also a command, and it convicts us of how we fail to rejoice in God. And so we run instead to idols for refuge from our past resentments and fears of the future. So, okay, fine. Let that command, let that law convict you, but then turn to Christ for refuge and trust him anew for forgiveness and rejoice again in glorious hope. So let's turn now to the other verse that was read uh, this morning, that Bob read. Romans 12, 12, which says, Be joyful in hope, in hope, patient in affliction, devoted to prayer. And I love this verse because of its realism. You're going to suffer in this world, patient in affliction, but you can still rejoice in hope. It tells us plainly you can't find joy in this world. You can have joy in this world, but you can't find it in this world. What you can expect to find in this world is affliction. Nevertheless, you can have joy in this world. You can rejoice in the midst of this world of affliction, but only by rejoicing in hope. Jesus told us that in this world we would have trouble. We should not be surprised. When affliction strikes, expect it. It's a, it's a great paradox. 
But if you would expect less joy here, you would actually have more joy here. Because your joy would then be coming from your future hope. And because it would not then be easily shaken when affliction comes. If we could get a hold of this verse, we would have a more enduring joy. Why? Because it would not be the fleeting mountaintop experience kind of joy that gets broadsided by affliction, but it would be a realistic joy based on hope that has room in its outlook for suffering. Well, let me say a few words about one particular affliction. The affliction of depression. I think we can call depression an affliction. It is true that when we are depressed, we must accept our responsibility to set our hope and rejoice, but I believe that there are biological, temperamental, familial preconditions for depression, and that some people will have to endure this affliction more than others, just like every other affliction in the world is not evenly distributed. But I also have to say that I am very weary of the condescending attitude that I read in some modern Christian psychology writings that would pat me on the hand and say, now, pastor, don't you go just telling depressed people to read their Bibles, because we now know that a lot of depression is biological and not spiritual as though they're offering some incredible scientific insight that's going to revolutionize the way we do ministry. If this is such a novel idea, why do I read in Jonathan Edwards' 300-year-old biography of David Brainerd that he suffered from, quote, the disease of melancholy? Think about that phrase. Those guys understood that depression had biological causes, but they looked at it and said, well, So this is my affliction to endure, all right? But I can still be joyful in hope, even though I have to be patient with this affliction. You can actually be depressed and rejoice at the same time. And I've discovered this to be true in my own life. I still experience my same old mood swings. But when they come, I can now sometimes, anyway, remember to say to myself, I wouldn't say this to you, I'll say it to myself. Say, yep, I'm depressed right now, but so what? I'm saved. I usually get this way around 4 p.m. I'll probably feel better around 8. Don't worry about it. Think about your hope and persevere. This will pass. And so instead of having a short-term daily struggle horizon where I'm trapped under under the depression, I'm increasingly able to have a hopeful eternal perspective That can just sort of watch the depression go by. I was discussing this one night with two other melancholy friends. And we were tremendously encouraged when one of them said, of course I can have a complete and full life, even if I'm biologically preconditioned to depression. Just think about people who have far more severe afflictions. We've all known people with severe physical afflictions who are enabled to live beautiful lives of joy. Remember, uh, Pastor Nick told us a few weeks ago about Johnny Erickson Tata and, and her ministry. How does she do that? Well, because God has given her the grace to know that life is about knowing God. 10,000 years from now, do you think she'll care that you got to play sports in college and she didn't? David Brainerd is rejoicing in the presence of Jesus now. How much do you think he regrets 
having suffered from the disease of melancholy. He's praising God for that thorn in the flesh that taught him to trust and hope in the Lord. Hope is an anchor for the soul, we learn in Hebrews. That's a nautical image, and it makes me think of another nautical image, the wind and the waves, the storms of life. That's when you drop an anchor, right? When the storm comes and the wind threatens to blow you off course, you drop the anchor. So expect affliction, expect storms, expect to be blown back and forth. But if you have your anchor stuck fast in the bedrock of eternity, then you can stay put. And that's what the word persevere means. It's literally remain under affliction. Stay put, stand under the affliction. You can do that. And you can even rejoice while you are doing it. If you rejoice in hope. Amen.